If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn, please, to John chapter 12. Technology. (laughs) All right, I'm going to go for it. So, John chapter 12, uh, we're going to see today a story, an event. Uh, It's kind of a story of of contrast, a story of confusion. Uh, It is a, a story that is well known, what we today call Palm Sunday. The triumphant entry of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. But what we're going to see in this passage is that there may be a bit of confusion upon uh, with the crowds. The things that they are saying are true, but maybe their understanding of what they're saying is not exactly true. Uh, and that will hopefully make sense as, as we go. So John chapter 12 is where we are. The verse, uh, verse 12. So John 12, 12. If you have a Bible, please follow along with me. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we come before you now to open up your word, to read your word, to understand your word. And we pray that you would help us by your spirit. I pray that these words would ring true in our hearts. I pray that you'd give us all minds to understand that you would give us hearts to yield and respond and to believe. Pray that you would speak to us, minister to us through this word, or keep me from any folly up here, any error. May it fall on deaf ears, anything that is is of me and not of you. Uh, We just ask your blessing on this time, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Well, everybody wants a king. Everyone wants a king. Now, you may say, Pastor, if you're listening, you may say, Pastor, you're contradicting yourself because you keep telling us that the, the root, one of the fundamental aspects of sin is that people don't want a king. Right? They don't want a ruler, and that is true. But everyone wants a king that will do their bidding, that will accomplish the things they want accomplished, that will put forth the policies that they want put forth, that will destroy the enemies that they want destroy, that will, that will be on the agenda that they want to see. Uh, this was the case back in Israel's history in the book of 1 Samuel. Je- uh, Joshua had led the people into the promised land after Moses dies. Joshua is the one that actually brought them in. And they struggled. If you read the book of Judges, you know this sin cycle that Israel went through. And at the end, 
of 1 Samuel, there's no king. And it says everyone did what was right in their eyes. There was no king in the land of Israel. In the book of 1 Samuel, they begin to ask for a king. And Samuel warns them that this is not going to be all that you hope that it is. He's going to oppress you. He's going to take your young people and put them out to war. But they want a king, it says, because they wanted someone to go before them and fight their battles. They wanted a king to win their victories for them. They wanted a king that would represent them and do what they wanted him to do. It's not all that different today. Right? Everyone in, in, in America wants a president, wants a governor, wants a congressman, wants a Supreme Court justice that's going to do what they want them to do. It's going to put forth their policies. It's going to think like they think. It's going to rule how they think that they should rule. People don't want a king who thinks differently than them. And that's the case here with the Jews in the first century. They're excited about a king. They want a king. And they want a king that's going to do away with Rome. That's going to put the Roman emperor under their boot. And finally they would be victorious. They would be back to the glory days of Israel of old. So that is the kind of the premise behind this. And I want to look at this story, this event... And I've divided it up into three points. Firstly, we'll see the scene. Secondly, the celebration. And then lastly, we will see the story behind it. The scene, the celebration, and the story behind it. We see the scene then here in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. We have this large crowd that is gathered for another feast. This is the Passover feast. And we've seen John often spending time at these feasts, talking about the things Jesus did at the feast. Uh, This is one of the three pilgrimage feasts where Israel, the Israelites would come from wherever they had lived. If they didn't live in Jerusalem, they would make a pilgrimage to the holy city to remember the mighty works of God, to celebrate the Passover. You remember the Passover was that event as Israel was being delivered from Egyptian bondage and God sent Moses, his prophet, to go stand before Pharaoh and God did a series of plagues to the the land of Egypt. But the tenth plague, the last plague, was a plague that was going to fall not just on the Egyptians, but on everyone in the land. God was going to destroy all of the firstborn, humans, animals, all of it. And anyone that was there that did not receive God's provision, their firstborn would be destroyed, even the Israelites. But you remember in that story, God gave them a provision. He gave them a way for His wrath to pass over. They were to slay a a lamb, an unblemished lamb. They were to cook the animal a certain way. They were to eat the meat, and they were to do away with the rest of the animal. Nothing could be left. And then they were to take the blood... Painted on their doorpost, right? And whatever family was in that home was going to be protected. When the destroyer came and saw the blood of that lamb on the doorpost, he would pass over. God's wrath would pass over everyone that was under that blood of the lamb. It's hard not to see the connection there to the gospel. We see the gospel of Jesus Christ in shadowy form in that one first Passover. As Israel trusted God's promise, made that step of faith, believing that if they did this, 
that God's promise would be true. And when they believed God in that way and they were covered with the blood, His wrath passed over them. And you remember in John chapter 2, I believe it was, when John the Baptist first laid eyes on Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is our Passover Lamb. He is God's provision for His judgment and wrath. He died as a sacrifice, gave His life as a sacrifice. And any person who believes in that provision, who trusts in Jesus to be the sin bearer, the, the, the wrath bearer, we are then under His blood, as it were, like the Israelites. And when God's judgment comes, when God's wrath comes, He will pass over anyone who has trusted in that provision. So the crowds are here to celebrate this Passover festival, which has many gospel implications. Um, it's hard to speculate on, on how big of a crowd it was, but there is a historian who was born a few years after Jesus was crucified. His name is Josephus. He lived from the year 37 to the year 100. And he was a Jewish man, not a Christian, but he wrote much about the things that took place during that time. And he writes about a Passover in the year about 60. And he said there were 2.7 million Jews that converged upon Jerusalem. So whether that's inflated or not, we can see that it's a lot of people in this small city that have come to celebrate the Passover, to worship God and to remember His mighty works. So that's the scene. That's what's going on. That's why they're there. But secondly, I want to look at the celebration. The celebration in verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see, now the crowds, they are there in Jerusalem, and they've heard that Jesus is coming, and they've left the town, they've left the city to go and meet this king as he comes into Jerusalem. This is kind of a normal uh, a thing that people would do to honor a king as he comes into a community, into a city. Uh, similarly, if we have some sort of... Some sort of um, person of royalty or of a, a, a leader of another country, if they come to America, we don't just let them knock at the front door of the White House when they show up, right? There's a red carpet laid out on the runway. There's a, the bands are there. It's, it's, it's a sign of honor. And the people have left the town because they've heard about King Jesus. He is arriving. And it says that they were out there waving palm branches, now we saw this, I believe it was John chapter 8. This is part of one of the other festivals that they would wave these palm branches and the temple choir would sing and the people would sing what is called the great Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to 118. Now this was not part of this festivity, but a palm branches had become kind of a national symbol at this point for the nation of Israel. And as they are waving these branches, they're crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is basically taken directly from Psalm 118. If you want to turn there with me. Psalm 118 and verse 25. And this is one of the five psalms that would have been sung at the other festival um, while they were waving the palm branches. 
Uh, if you could think about some of the hymns, the great hymns of the Christian tradition that you are familiar with, that you know, that you've sung your whole life, something like Amazing Grace, you know, one of those songs that just kind of part of the Christian experience for many saints. These five Psalms, 113 through 118, would have been like Amazing Grace for a Christian. You would have known it, it would have been um, part of the psyche of the people, it would have been a part of their worship, and they recite these words here. Psalm 118, uh, you see there in verse 25, it says in the ESV, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us, we pray. And that word Hosanna basically means save now. And it's the same word, the Hebrew word there is the root of that word Hosanna. It's the same word that they are using. They're basically reciting this psalm. But they, they don't say the next line. But I think the next line helps us kind of with their thinking behind what they're saying to this king. It says, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Give us success. They want this king that's going to come and rule and reign. And then verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It appears that the Jews have finally gotten it. After all of the opposition to Christ, all of the difficulty that he has gone through, here is a multitude of the Jewish people crying out, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All along, Jesus has been telling them, I've come in the name of the Lord. I've come in the name of my Father. He sent me. I come to do His will. It seems that they finally figured it out. They've, they've called Him here, the King of Israel. And then John says that these things happened to fulfill a prophecy that was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. And I want to look at that prophecy. Uh, the book of Zechariah is the second to last book of the Old Testament. So if you turn to Matthew and you go two books back, you will find the book of Zechariah. Chapter 9 is where this um, quotation is taken from. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now this is a prophecy that was spoken about 500 years before Jesus came. But I think now, in light of us looking back on the cross, we, you will clearly see that this text speaks of Christ. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see this announcement of this king that would come some 500 years prior to his actual arrival. The prophet here says that, Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is righteous. He will be a righteous king. Righteousness is an attribute, is a characteristic that Christians are to have. Right? We're to do righteous deeds. We are to judge rightly. We are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right? We are called to be righteous. That's, that's part of the fruit of the Spirit, part of Part of uh, being a Christian is to, is to be more and more righteous. But there is only one that is righteous. Righteousness is a perfection that Jesus has. It is, it is part of who He is. And it is actually His righteousness that has caused God to accept us. That's what justification is. That we one day will stand before God 
declared righteous. Doesn't mean that we're perfectly righteous now, but we have been imputed, given the righteousness of Jesus. We've been declared righteous because Jesus is righteous. So that we, when we believe in Him, His righteousness is credited to our accounts. And it says that this King that will come, that He is righteous. Secondly, it said that He will be having salvation. That this King that is to come has salvation. And of course, Jesus Christ is the only one that has salvation. He is the only one that offers salvation. Because salvation has been purchased by His blood. Acts 20 and 28, we read last week. I just want to read this little piece. It says, The church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. This king can come offering salvation because this king purchased salvation with His righteous life and sacrificial death. And He is the only way to salvation. There is no name given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. He is the only way to God. He says, no one can come to the Father but through me. So this king comes bringing salvation. The crowds, though, I think that they're thinking about something not so much spiritual, but something temporal, something physical on this earth. This word salvation in the Old Testament often had a twofold meaning. Uh, the word salvation is used for Israel being brought out of Egyptian bondage. God saved them from their enslavement. Right? That's a physical, temporal sort of salvation. And it seems that often they were leaning more on that kind of salvation than on the spiritual salvation that Jesus brings. If I could say it another way, they don't want their souls saved. They want their country saved. They want to see their country victorious with this king. But this king comes and he is bringing salvation. And it says that he is humble. Riding on a donkey. And of course that is who Jesus is, right? He is meek. He is mild. And remember, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength that is restrained. Jesus is not weak because He is meek, but He is able to restrain the awesome power that He has. Matthew 11 said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is meek, He is gentle, He is lowly, uh, and it says here that He is humble. That is, that is Christ, and He's riding on a donkey. He's riding on a donkey. This is not a war horse. He doesn't come in on this big impressive stallion on a, on a war horse that is impressive and intimidating with all sorts of royal garb hanging from it and, and, and shields and flags, but He comes riding on a donkey. I don't know if you've ever ridden a donkey before. A few years ago, my parents came to visit here and they wanted to go horseback riding. And we found some place out here in Talent, I think it was, and we were riding up on the hills. And there was probably eight of us or something. And we all got horses. And I got a donkey or mule or whatever this thing was. It was not a horse. <laughs> and it, was, it, it just kind of did its own thing. You know, it didn't want to go when I wanted it to go. But it loved to get right up on the horse in front of me, and the horse was trying to kick, and they were yelling at me to back off. And I, the donkey, it's doing what it wants, right? It was. It's not a very impressive animal to come riding in on as some as some king. But Jesus comes not as a war king, but as a peace.
peaceful king. He comes in humility. He's not making much of himself. But it seems that by and large, most of this is missed by the crowds. They are there crying out Hosanna, and they want a war king. They want an emperor. They want a national ruler. Jesus is none of these at this point, at least. So then we might ask the question, what type of king is Christ? What type of king is Jesus? Let me just say firstly and plainly, Jesus is a king. Not only is he a king, but Jesus is the king. Amen? Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. There is no higher authority than King Jesus. Yet, his kingdom does not operate like an earthly kingdom. His kingdom is sometimes called an upside-down kingdom because the things that are valued are often the things that the world hates. And the things that the world hates are the things that are valued in his kingdom. So a few things about this king that we are seeing being heralded here in our story. This king comes not to bring peace on earth, but to bring peace with God. The peace that Jesus offers is not peace on earth, as nice as that would be, but he offers peace with God. Something far greater, a need that is far greater for every human soul. It would be nice if we had peace on earth, but if we all had a nice, tranquil tranquil life while we were on our way to be condemned, then what good would that ultimately be? But Jesus comes to meet our greatest need, that our enmity with our Creator, our rebellion with our Creator would be done away with, that we would be reconciled to God, that we would stand before God one day. I don't know about you, but when I look back on my life, it is shocking and humbling that one day I will be able to stand before God Almighty and that He will allow me to come into His presence that He will allow me to come into His kingdom, not because of what I've done, but because of what King Jesus has done. And that's the first thing that He brings. He brings not peace on earth, but He brings peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This King that comes, He brings victory not over earthly enemies, but He brings victory over sin. He brings victory over sin. The, re- the reality is this, that all of us, B.C., all of us before Christ were held captive by our sin. Now, that looked different for many people, right? For some, of, for some people, that may have been um, obvious debauchery. That may have been criminal activity. That may have been things that the world would look at and say, yeah, those are wrong. And for others, it was just, we were filled with pride. Self-assurance, didn't need a God. I, I, I'm building my own kingdom. I have, I have it all figured out myself. But whatever that looked like, all of us before Christ were held captive by our sin. We were, as the Bible says, enslaved to it. But Jesus has come to give us victory over our sin and temptation. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to say today, if you're here burdened, 
If you're here struggling, if you're here with some besetting sin that you have battled with or been defeated by for many years, you can be set free in Jesus Christ. He gives victory over sin. When we do battle against our sin, empowered by the Spirit, I truly believe that when we fall upon our knees and cry out to the Lord, He can and He will give us victory over our sin. Number three, this King that has come, He has come not to win over nations, but souls. He has come not to win over nations, He has come to win souls. He rules by captivating the hearts and minds of people. The Bible teaches us that we have been now transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That we were lost, our souls were lost, led astray, walking in darkness. But Christ has won our souls to Himself so that now we are secure. Our faith is being kept in heaven. The inheritance that we have is sure because the work of Jesus Christ for our souls is sure. 1 Peter 2.25, You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see that picture there, that we were, we were like that lost sheep that is gone, has no flock, in danger out in the world, going to get snatched up by some wolf out there, uh, not, no, no way to feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, care for ourselves, but Christ has brought us into His flock, and He is now the shepherd and overseer of our souls. This King, King Jesus that has come, He rules not with power and might, but He rules with grace and mercy. And His ways, if you think about that, if you think about a worldly king, it's all about power and might. Whether it's military might, whether it is, whether it is with, a, with a strong power, confidence in themselves and their nation. But the way that Jesus rules is basically antithetical to the ways of this world. It is the opposite of what this world thinks about strength. But Jesus rules not with power and might, but with grace and mercy. Because it was His kindness that led you to repentance. Amen? It was His kindness that drew you to Himself. And part of that kindness that leads us to repentance is His kindness to show us our brokenness, to show us our need. If we don't know that we're broken, if we don't know that we have sin, then we don't know that we need to repent. But Christ, in His grace, and in His mercy, and in His kindness, shined the light, the truth of His Word into our hearts, showed us our brokenness, and then drew us to Himself in His great grace and mercy. Ephesians 2.4, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. He rules not with a rod of iron, at least not now. He rules not with power and might, but He rules with grace and mercy. The kingdom of this King, King Jesus, as He has come, His kingdom is not geographical, it is spiritual. His kingdom is not geographical, it is spiritual. It does not 
It does not find its location in one place on this earth. There is nowhere across the globe that you can go to be closer to God, nearer to Jesus. No building is more spiritual than another building. Jesus says in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. His reign, His dominion, His offer of grace is not tied to any geopolitical party. It's not tied to any location across the globe. But any person in any land can trust in Jesus Christ by faith and He will be their King. I would even go so far to say, and I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to move out of the way for the rocks and tomatoes. The nation of Israel no longer has a religious significance for the church. Its whole point, the Jewish people, sacrificial system, all of the festivals, all of it was to point to Christ. That was a shadow of the substance that was to come. And now that the substance is here, the shadow has been done away with. It is no longer necessary. His kingdom is not geographical, but it is spiritual. And lastly, this king fights not with a sword, but with a pride-shattering, grace-bestowing truth of the gospel. But I bet you would all admit that when that gospel came, when that truth was, was true for you, and you believed it in your bones, it came a bit like a knife. Because it comes to cut, right? It cuts out that self-assurance we have. It, it cuts away at the, at the pride. It cuts away at those false foundations that we once stood upon, thinking that we were good, thinking that we were true, thinking that we had life figured out. Hebrews 4 and 12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Jesus does not fight with a sword. His weapon is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. But that Word definitely penetrates deep, even into the heart. It, it, it discerns our motives, our thoughts, our intentions. It makes them plain when, when we don't even know the true motives that we had. The light of the Gospel divides and discerns the intentions of the hearts of a man. This is the sort of king that Jesus is here in this event. It is not the king I believe that they were looking for. But let me also just say this, that Christ will return one day. And He will return not as a mild lamb, but He will return as the lion from the tribe of Judah. This is the description that we see of that king when He returns uh, at His second advent. Then I saw heaven open, Revelation 19.11. And behold, a white horse. Notice, no more donkey. Now he's coming on a stallion, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, there he is, the righteous king. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the fullness of King Jesus. He comes here as a, as a lowly king, as a gentle king, uh, who is merciful, offering forgiveness and salvation, but he will one day come as a conquering king. Today, Jesus comes as a savior, but on that day, he will come as a judge. So we've seen the scene, and we've seen the uh, celebration that was taking place. And secondly, or lastly, thirdly, I want to see the story behind it. Story behind it. I want to focus on one, one, one aspect of this closing section. So John 12 and verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first about the prophecy. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I want to think about this event here, why things are taking place as they are. Why have the people come to him? Why have the masses of people went out To see Jesus. Well, it said that they heard that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Right? They had heard that this Jesus, they probably heard some stuff about him. Maybe some didn't. But they've heard now that he raised a man from the dead. And that's enough for them to say, hey, here's our king. Here's our ruler. This this must be him. But how did they know that he had raised a man from the dead? The answer to that is simple. And it says it right there at the end of verse 17, that the people that had been with him when he raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness to what he had done. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him is that they had heard he had done this sign. It's simple. Someone told them about Jesus. People were talking about what Jesus had done, telling of what they saw. She's coming. (laughs) Because people in awe of Christ and His words cannot help but tell others about Jesus. Uh, I've been reading recently Acts chapter 4 and 5. Just those two chapters. Uh, turn there if you, if, you, if you have your Bible. In this kind of crazy time that we find ourselves in, uh, I found Acts chapter 4 and 5 to be super encouraging because it is here that we see a great example of... <clears throat> The apostles and how they deal with a how they deal with a government that is <laughs> how the apostles deal with a government that is telling them not to preach the gospel. It's a great example of how the apostles dealt with persecution. So I want to just pick up in Acts chapter four in verse nineteen. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They've been arrested. 
for, for sharing, preaching the name of Jesus. And they're before the authorities and they say, hey, if you think this is wrong, you're the ones that are bringing the laws. You need to decide what you think, if we should listen to you or God. But we cannot help but speak of Jesus. We cannot help but tell people what we have seen and what we have heard. And this is the biblical pattern, right? From the beginning, that Christians tell other people about Jesus. It's not all that sophisticated, right? From, from a worldly perspective, it's not all that impressive. This is it. You mean, you mean that God the Son became a man, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, went to a cross, died, rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is returning one day, and His plan to have this truth go throughout the world is just that people would talk about it? That's it. right? It's that simple. That people tell people about Jesus. And we see this in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 is a verse that is a, a great memory verse, a verse that we love to put on stickers and shirts and coffee mugs. Um, but I love when Paul writes because he seems at times to anticipate um, what we're thinking, what we're going to say, how we might respond to a verse. Romans ten thirteen, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen, right? That's a verse that we would amen. Yes, that is true. Amen. That's a verse that as evangelicals that we love. Anyone that calls on the name of the Lord, he will be saved. And it seems though as if Paul anticipates that amen, as if we're just going to stop there. Sometimes I think we think of that verse as a great concept, as a great idea that's kind of out here, but he kind of then brings it to bear on each and every one of us. See, I think tries to challenge us with a series of questions. Verse 14, How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Do you see these challenging questions that Paul gives to this Great statement that everyone who believes will be saved. How are they going to be saved? How are they going to call on the name of Jesus if they have not believed in that Jesus? And how are they going to hear about that Jesus? How are they going to believe in Him unless they've heard of Him? And how are they going to hear about Him unless somebody tells them about Jesus? And how are they going to tell people about Jesus unless they've been sent? Beloved, I think the Bible is plain. We've been sent. Now, there are definitely some folks that are called to go to foreign lands, to learn a culture, learn a language, live there and preach the gospel. Of course, we call those missionaries. But I do not think it's far-fetched to say this, that if God has not called you to preach the gospel in a foreign land, then He has called you to do so locally. Let me say that again. If God has not called you to preach the gospel in a foreign land, and he has called us to do so locally. The story behind this event is simple. People spoke of Jesus. They had seen what Jesus can do. They had experienced his power firsthand. They saw him raise a man from the dead. And they just simply told other people about him. And what happened? Masses of people went to Jesus. 
Now, did these crowds need a theology lesson? They did. They didn't have that much of an understanding of this Christ. They were off. Did many of them not believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe that is the case. But none of that matters on the part of those that spoke of Christ. They did their part. Right, we talked about Wednesday the fact that some plant and some water, but God gives the growth. It's not on us to convert people. It's not on us to change their mind. It's not on us to have the perfect presentation and say whatever we need to say so that they'll make a choice right there and turn to Jesus. We are to herald, to proclaim. A herald is one that just shares the news, that gives people the information. Yes, in a way that is persuasive. We want to compel people to turn to Christ. But ultimately, salvation is of the Lord. It is not our work. But we see, I just wanted to draw that out, that the reason that these masses of people have come to Jesus was simply because Christians talked about Jesus. They told people about Him. It's, it's that simple. That is the formula that God's given us. It's not, it doesn't seem all that impressive from the outside, but it is God's plan to grow the church, that Christians make much of Jesus. So to wrap things up, um, I think this story is a bit... As much as we rejoice in the triumphant king that Jesus is, as far as from the perspective of the crowds, it's a bit of a sad commentary. You know, we have these people that are crying out to their king, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's not only maybe four days later that these same crowds are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. They, by and large, turn their back on Jesus because he's not the sort of king that they want. He's not going to do their bidding. He's not going to change the things that they want changed. But church, be encouraged because Jesus is king. Jesus is the king. He is king of all kings and Lord of all lords. And he is a triumphant king. That means that Satan, sin, and death have all been defeated by King Jesus. That means that your enmity with God Your rebellion, that great chasm that you had between yourself and God because of your sin has been defeated. It's been done away with because of King Jesus. The daily struggles that we have, our weaknesses, our proclivity towards sin and temptation, that battle that we fight now, we fight it not on our own, but we fight it empowered by the great strength of King Jesus. The fears that we have, the worries that we have, the burdens that we have that are too much to bear, that wear us down, that we have no answer for, that if we look at on our own, in our flesh, seem hopeless. None of those are too big for King Jesus. The evil that we see in the world, wickedness, sin, that seems to be rampant, that seems to be escalating day after day, all will be made right by King Jesus. And your future... Whatever tomorrow may bring, your life, your health, the state of your soul, eternity, it is all in the mighty hand of King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a conquering, ruling, sovereign king. We see that the crowds here, they they misunderstood who you were, what you came to do at that time. They wanted that Revelation 19 king now. But we thank you that we know that you are the sovereign ruler of all things. Lord, that our 
very life is in your hands, that our salvation is in your hands, that our day-to-day suffering, our day-to-day struggles, our day-to-day lives, just the stuff that we do, you are in control of all things. Lord, I pray that you would relieve a burden today from someone, that you would grant hope today for someone with this truth, that you rule all things, that what we see on the news, what we see in the media, what we see from any government across this globe, that is not the ultimate authority. That the, everything that happens, happens because you have allowed it. And nothing will happen that you have not allowed. So we find great confidence in that truth. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.